You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. A patient presents to you with symptoms consistent with lumbar radiculopathy. When can we treat that patient conservatively, and when should we be more aggressive in our approach? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. Daniel Mazinek, Associate Director of the Center for Spine Health at the Neurologic Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Mazinek. My pleasure. Well, this is a common problem. Our patients come in to see us with that pain that's radiating down the leg. Tell us how we should approach them and get an initial feeling for whether or not we need to jump right on this or have more time for conservative treatment. Well, I think the first thing I should say is that not all leg pain necessarily represents lumbar radiculopathy, such as a herniated disc with nerve injury or entrapment. I think the first thing Maybe the best way to put it is that evaluation begins with a careful history and exam, not an MRI. The other kinds of causes that are actually quite common and that can mimic lumbar radiculopathy include things such as greater trochanteric bursitis, hip osteoarthritis. So you really need to carefully exclude the non-spinal causes of leg pain first. The other thing I would say is that don't be fooled by an MRI in the beginning uh, along the same lines. The MRI scan, which is a great test to show anatomy, doesn't really tell you whether an anatomic abnormality is really responsible for symptoms or not. If you're over 40 in this country, you have an abnormal MRI, and that can include abnormalities such as disc herniation in the absence of symptoms. So just because we see an abnormality on the MRI doesn't mean that we can attribute symptomatic significance to it. Are there some numbers about that that we can tell our patients? Well, Don't yeah, rush I think I, what I usually tell patients, as I said, is that if you're 40 years old, there's about a 30% chance that you have a herniated disc on your MRI in the absence of any symptoms. The longer you live, the more you're going to have abnormalities. Degenerative disc disease or disc degeneration is virtually universal by the time one is over 60. You know, I would say a bulging disc, which is commonly reported in radiology reports, is almost a normal finding in someone over 40. The errors of symptom attribution, as we say, are a serious risk in not paying enough attention to the clinical history and the exam. So do that good history, do that good exam, make sure that you're indeed dealing with something that is due to a, an irritated nerve root. Now, once you have done that and are convinced that the problem indeed is a true lumbar radiculopathy, I think uh, then the issue as to the urgency of intervening surgically is an important one because the natural history is such and the results of medical treatment is such that, that probably 75 to 80 percent of people with true lumbar radiculopathy will get better without surgery. But who should really be considered for surgery in the early days or in the early onset of the problem, generally speaking, there are some absolute and some relative indications for earlier rather than later surgical intervention. Certainly, the well-known number one cause for an immediate surgical intervention would be cauda equina syndrome. That is typically a huge disc herniation with severe compression of the cauda equina, typically manifesting with leg weakness, bowel or bladder dysfunction or failure to sense the need to urinate, for example, as well as anesthesia or numbness in the so-called saddle distribution, that is the buttocks, the perineum. So that presentation is one that should really prompt an immediate uh, imaging study, meaning an MR, and a prompt surgical referral if one identifies the presence of that large disc and severe cauda equina compression. That's probably the single one immediate 
surgical emergency. The other relative indication is progressive weakness. That doesn't mean loss of an ankle reflex or some weakness in the extensor halysis longus, but if one is seeing over a relatively short time some progressive weakness developing in the leg, going from a little bit of weakness in the big toe to a foot drop uh, the next week, that's a situation where uh, surgical referral is clearly uh, indicated. So the progression is the key there? The progression is the key, absolutely. The reason for the surgical referral is that Although surgery cannot be guaranteed to reverse the weakness that has already developed, it certainly will halt the progressive nerve injury and thereby at least prevent the weakness from progressing to a point, say, from a mild foot drop to a complete foot drop, for example. Are things like older age, systemic symptoms such as fever or weight loss, do those play into surgical referral or more just decisions about imaging? I think that part, the so-called red flags play into the role as to when to image. If one has a good clinical picture of lumbar radiculopathy, meaning leg pain greater than back pain, positive nerve tension signs such as a straight leg raising test, in the absence of red flags, you can actually, knowing the favorable natural history and the results of medical treatment, treat that individual even without imaging. Imaging doesn't have to be done in many people right out of the box. But if one in that good initial history and physical, detect some red flags. Uh, certainly fever, night sweats, weight loss, history of malignancy, and particularly these are of more concerns for perhaps in someone in the older age group. Then clearly that earlier rather than later imaging makes sense. Obviously one is looking for discitis, tumors, those types of uncommon but serious entities that you don't want to miss and you need to do the imaging, again, very early on. Does an EMG nerve conduction velocity uh, play a role a little later down the road? I would say that the EMG nerve conduction velocity may play a role in selected individuals where there is some concern about whether that leg pain is truly radicular. Uh, the fact is, most of the time, the clinical history and exam and MRI imaging, when you're at that point, it provides enough information so that most people don't need an EMG. But if there are some inconsistencies or concerns about the clinical picture, then certainly a well-done EMG and nerve conduction study can confirm, uh, number one, the presence of a radiculopathy and, and also indicate that it, for example, is a intraspinal problem rather than a peripheral neuropathy. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me is Dr. Daniel Mazinek, Associate Director of the Center for Spine Health at the Cleveland Clinic, and we are discussing the approach to patients with a lumbar radiculopathy. Dr. Mazinek, if we don't have those red flags, we've made a clinical diagnosis, what does the literature support in terms of appropriate empiric treatment? If one doesn't have the red flags and we are convinced it's a lumbar radiculopathy and we have mild or stable weakness and no signs of cauda equina. The literature would say that the first decision is medical versus surgical treatment, and that medical treatment in most cases has a successful outcome. Medical treatment consisting primarily of obviously educating the individual. Number two, uh, certainly a well-designed, customized exercise physical therapy program. The old idea of go to bed for two weeks and then come back and see me is a bad idea generally. That tends to promote muscle weakness, deconditioning, and bone loss, among other things. 
there is evidence that a careful uh, physical therapy evaluation, particularly using the so-called McKenzie approach, which is designed to demonstrate the ability with certain exercise movements to centralize the pain, that is, pull it out of the leg, can be very prognostic and ultimately lead to a treatment plan encompassing those exercise movements. So early on physical therapy evaluation, anti-inflammatory medication uh, initially if there are no contraindications and NSAID, if there are contraindications or if an NSAID has been ineffective, although there's not great literature support, it is common practice to use some form of corticosteroid or either an oral pulse of steroid or an epidural steroid injection or a series of injections. Epidural steroids have not been shown to affect the ultimate likelihood of need for surgery, but they have been shown to, in many patients, produce a temporary period of symptom relief, which may, in effect, buy some time for nature to take its course, perhaps for the therapy to work. So uh, some form of anti-inflammatory plays a role. Clearly, a degenerative or herniated disc is rich in the inflammatory mediators that can play a role in the ridiculous symptoms beyond nerve entrapment itself. In terms of the exercise, it sounds like you favor early referral to a physical therapist versus here's a sheet of back exercises to do at home. That's correct. I mean, I, I think that our experience has been that one size doesn't fit all, that a careful analysis by a spine-oriented physical therapist who has a broad skill set is better than handing someone a sheet of exercises. That's right. And then the epidural steroid timing kind of after the non-steroidal trial? Yes. I look at epidural steroids as a second tier of temporary symptom-relieving anti-inflammatory therapy for an individual, for example, who has too much pain to even consider doing any kind of exercise despite a, at least a brief trial of an anti-inflammatory orally. Do you use some oral steroids, a medrol dose pack? Yes. Pre- you know, amazingly, despite the general use of steroids in that fashion, there has never been a study comparing oral corticosteroids versus epidurals in acute radiculopathy. We don't really have much data to go on, so it is really anecdotal experience But I would say that clearly 10 to 14 days of a tapering dose of prednisone or a dose pack can be of significant benefit for some patients in providing symptomatic relief and buying time, uh, as I said earlier, for the other parts of the treatment to be effective. What role, if any, do some of the narcotic analgesics, muscle relaxers, or even non-traditional therapy, acupuncture and the like, play here? You know, I would say muscle relaxants play very little role uh, other than if people are having trouble sleeping. Uh, sometimes a bedtime dose of a muscle relaxant will let them rest better. There's virtually no evidence that muscle relaxants have much role in lumbar radiculopathy. Opioid analgesics can be of benefit uh, in appropriately selected patients in relieving the acute pain and, again, allowing people to engage in other kinds of therapy that are going to get them better. The so-called non-traditional or complementary therapies, particularly acupuncture, may have, again, a symptom-relieving, temporizing role. Uh, The data is not great, particularly in radicular syndromes, uh, but we have seen some sporadic success as a complement, not as a standalone treatment, but as a complement to some of the other therapy we've already mentioned. What is the timing if someone is not doing well with this medical treatment we've just described? When does imaging come in? When does surgical referral enter the picture? I think imaging is best done 
when one is at the point of considering surgical referral. Clearly, having the imaging closest to the actual surgery consult or surgical procedure makes most sense since MR imaging of disc herniations can change in a matter of a few days, much less a few weeks. In fact, most surgeons prefer imaging certainly within a few weeks of any planned surgery. Probably the best advice in terms of how long to go with medical treatment before surgical intervention for pain, and that's generally what surgery is done for, is done for pain that has not responded to a good medical program and which is at a level that the patient can't tolerate. In that time frame, somewhere between 6 and 12 weeks of medical treatment is reasonable. I want to thank Dr. Daniel Mazinek, who's been our guest as we've been discussing the approach to a patient who presents with symptoms of a lumbar radiculopathy. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.